Hey everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival, and I will be the first to admit that this week's podcast was a real eye-opener for me because I definitely fell into the same trap that most gun owners, I think, fall into when it comes to choosing a personal defense weapon. Fortunately, my good friend Michael DeBethencourt helped me see the light, and I'm now giving a second look at a gun that most people never, ever really consider for their arsenal. Go ahead and listen to this week's interview to discover exactly what I'm talking about and see if you become a convert as well. Let's get started. If bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, would you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. They're the little pipsqueak of the firearms world. The red-headed stepchild that's too often overlooked by serious gun owners for its lack of size and perceived lack of power. And by the way, I can say that because I do have red hair and I am a stepchild. I'm, of course, talking about the snub-nosed revolver. Not as sexy as a super compact Glock, but it's been the tried-and-true backwatcher of many a street cop and private dick out on the streets for decades. So... Does the snubby deserve a second look as a personal defense weapon? Does it pack enough man-stopping power for you to dare to pick one up and face the ridicule of your poker buddies or the self-proclaimed gun gurus down at the range who carry giant guns to, let's say, overcompensate perhaps for other things that they may own that are smaller? Our guest today would say yes, and he's here to share his snub-nosed expertise and tactical know-how to make you a convert and rethink your defense arsenal. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and patriot. And joining us today is my favorite snub-nosed evangelist and tactical firearms expert, Michael DeBethencourt. Michael, welcome to the program. Well, Jeff, thank you for having me. I always look forward to uh, for these conversations. I love uh, I love the information that you have. You've got a lot of great experience. And listen, for everybody out there, if you if you haven't um, heard one of our interviews before with Michael, Michael's a 30-year student of the martial arts and a 20-year student of police defense tactics. He is a nationally recognized defensive revolver and weapon disarming and improvised weapons trainer and an internationally recognized tactical folding knife instructor slash trainer. A former instructor of the SIG Arms Academy, Michael went on to create his own organization specializing in courses on snub revolver, weapon disarming and retention, and folding knife skills for both law enforcement officers and legally armed citizens. He's currently working on a three-volume set of books covering skills, tactics, and tips for the snub revolver shooter. So I know we're going to get some really nice, juicy secrets out of him today. Now, for more information about Michael and his current training courses and schedule, please visit his website at www.snubtraining.com. Michael, obviously, the revolver gives up ammunition capacity compared to most automatics. So what do you see as the three main reasons the revolver beats the auto for concealed carry and self-defense? And I know you've got, I know you've got like a whole bazillion different reasons why the revolver beats the, the, the auto, but give me your three best you know, if you were to convert somebody, what are the three best reasons somebody should consider a snub nose? All right, well, let, let me start with a quick note. I don't try to convince anybody that it is the perfect weapon. 
But just like you have pens and pencils on your desk, there is a role for the pistol, and there is occasionally the role for the revolver. And you certainly would want to learn how to use both well. Um, my, when, when you, you know, preface the question and you ask, you know, are you, you know that the revolver gives up ammunition capacity compared to the auto, my retort would be, well, that's because the auto gives up concealability for ammunition capacity. So you can get a larger weapon with more rounds or a smaller weapon with fewer but more concealability. So there's always a trade-off. Uh, one of the reasons I prefer, or three of the reasons I prefer the revolver, is first of all, primarily, I have concealability with exceptional power. Now, you can take literally any shooter and start them off on the wheel gun and use them minimal uh, recoiling rounds and work them all the way up to something uh, amazingly powerful like the ultralight 357s. Now, you can't get in any other weapon, to my knowledge, that level of versatility in that size package with that potential level of power. So it has an enormous amount of um, flexibility while it still remains or retains concealability. Another advantage that I prefer uh, is accessibility. Um, it's true that you can hide a pistol nearly any place, but there are more places you can conceal and then rapidly access a small revolver. You can and probably have known folks who will put a revolver in an overcoat pocket, uh, the front of a set of jeans, or even for some officers in some situations uh, in small bags uh, that you can hold in your hand. You can't put a full-size or even some uh, uh, petite-sized semi-automatic pistols in those same parts uh, and still have the speed and access. Uh, and last but not least is simplicity. Now, when we're talking about shooters, most shooters imagine that they are the icon, that the guns that they can handle are the guns that everyone should handle. The problem is that's not always the case. Uh, if you're a married man with adult children, you may have a wife who's never going to be uh, a shooter with a skill level that you possess. And if you have adult parents, that applies true. And if you have adult children that are responsible, that also applies. Well, you're not going to be everywhere with them forever. So with the revolver, you can provide a self-defense tool for a much wider range of less dedicated shooters. And whether I'm sleeping or I'm ill or eventually I come to pass away, I prefer to know that the family that I leave behind has the tools and the appropriate level of training to master the tools that will keep them safe when I'm not available. So for concealability, accessibility, and simplicity, I tend to gravitate towards the small revolvers. Well, Michael, when I'm when I'm going to to shop for a snub nose revolver, I'm gonna, I'm going to go buy one for myself for my personal defense arsenal. What are the three main features I should look for when I'm going to buy one for concealed carry? That's an excellent question. Uh, let me preface this. The car, if I can use an analogy, is a tool that has to be all things to all people. The manufacturer doesn't know whether you're going to make it an off-road vehicle, a NASCAR, uh, you're going to uh, reconfigure it uh, uh, as simply a, a family wagon, or there's some special uh, function you want that uh, car to uh, be capable of. And therefore, they make a very generic product. Well, firearms manufacturers do the same. If you are going to buy a gun, the manufacturer doesn't know if you're going to be a collector, a target shooter, a weekend shooter, or a very serious self-defense practitioner. So the guns usually come straight from the factory uh, with a lot more generic 
features and not nearly enough specific features for self-defense. If I were recommending a, a, a small revolver uh, to a newer shooter, uh, I would ask them to consider three primary features to get yourself into the self-defense uh, revolver uh, milieu. Uh, first of all, um, there are many, many brands, many, many frame configurations. Uh, the first thing I would recommend is that they get a shrouded or encased hammered firearm. Now, that usually implies either the uh, Smith & Wesson bodyguards or the uh, Centennial styles. Uh, for a variety of mechanical reasons, I actually prefer the uh, shrouded hammer bodyguard over the Centennial, but both will work. And the nice thing about that is that one of the, um, one of the Achilles heels of the self-defense uh, revolver, especially when concealed, is the exposed hammer. And when you're trying to drag it out quickly, that uh, fish hook shape will often catch on cover garments or edges of pockets. And in an emergency, that's the, literally the last thing you want to happen. So I would try to recommend uh, a firearm that had a shrouded or an encased hammer. A second, a mid-weight a firearm. You have stainless steel and blue steel, which are both in the same general weight category. You have the uh, scanty and the titanium guns, which are very, very light. Uh, but for a variety of mechanical reasons, the mid-weight alloys, um, the air weights, as Smith & Wesson calls them, versus the air lights are always preferable. They have sufficient mass to soak up recoil, yet they are uh, not so light as they are punishing with stronger self-defense ammunition. And last but not least, a little bit controversial, is I try to avoid uh, firearms that have uh, internal locks. Um, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, all I would say is that uh, uh, John Farnham in 2002 had, wrote, had written about in his email newsletter some of the guns locking up while shooting. Mass, you wrote in 2005, I believe it was an American handgunner, the guns locking up while shooting. Um, I have literally lost track of how many uh, shooting academies and public ranges have complained or noted guns locking up. And I just came across an excellent book on the uh, snub revolver by a gentleman named Stephen Camp, and he notes in his book, Incidences of the Guns Locking Up. Uh, I, I'm not going to get into the, 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 the legal reasons why the locks were put in, but my thinking is if there's any paper-thin chance, or even if there's almost no chance these, these guns will lock up while shooting, but you feel uncomfortable, the weapon has to be something that you feel completely reliable so I would, my third recommendation is finding those firearms that were made without internal locks. Okay, we've been talking with Michael DeBethencourt from SnubTraining.com about the under-recognized power of the snub nose revolver as a personal defense weapon. And we'll be back with more tips, including lightning-fast reloads, how to maximize the snubby's stopping power, and real close-quarters combat gunfighting tactics. But first, check out this special message. What if everything you knew about how to stop a violent attacker with your gun was wrong? Discover the advanced tactics you must know now to protect yourself and those you love with a firearm. Check out our free book, Stopping Power Secrets. Inside, you'll find such no-hold-barred shockers as 1. The three most common myths and misinformation shoveled out by movies and gun range know-it-alls. 
that could get you killed in a real-life gunfight. Two, the cold, hard truth about your personal weapon's ability to be a one-shot man-stopper. Three, what coroners know about selecting the right ammo for your firearm that you don't. Four, and the simple training trick used by Abrams tank crews and commercial airline pilots that will prepare you for a real attack even better than your best day at the range. Don't place your family's safety in the hands of Hollywood fairy tales and hearsay. Claim your free copy of Stopping Power Secrets now, now. at www.stoppingpowersecrets.com. And now, back to the show. Okay, we're back with Michael DeBethencourt of snubtraining.com to show you why the Snub Nose Revolver definitely has a place in your personal defense arsenal. We have a lot more to cover, so let's go ahead and jump right back into our interview now. You know, Michael, one of the uh, one of the things a lot of shooters have to think about when in a real firefight is reloading. I mean, hopefully the number of rounds that you have in whatever weapon you have is going to be enough to be able to stop the threat. But the reality is, you know, you're not always going to hit your target. You never know how many rounds it's actually going to take or how many people you're going to be facing. So reloading is always a real big problem. So what are my options for reloading a snub-nosed revolver under the adrenal stress of a real shooting? I mean, are, are speed loaders, moon clips, or speed strips preferable? And then what reloading technique is most likely to get me back in the action the fastest? All right. Uh, two excellent questions. Let me uh, suggest first some good news, bad news, uh, and then I'll try to give you some tips that will be some value. Um, there's a very famous police trainer down in Florida, Yelena Poella, and she had done an extensive study of um, – self-defense users, and it is her research that no revolver shooter has ever had to reload. Now, I'm not going to dispute whether that is or isn't the case, but it's nice to know currently it has never happened. But we have to be practical. If you are the only individual where you need to reload, it's something that you want to be prepared for. Um, We generally have uh, four options, loose rounds, uh, some sort of uh, loading strip, uh, quick strips or, sp- or speed strips, depending on your brand, uh, speed loaders, a, a variety of uh, brands, and then moon clips. Um, no one's going to argue that the moon clip and the speed loader are probably the fastest mechanism. The problem is, and this seems counterintuitive, folks who find the J-frame convenient to conceal will simultaneously complain that the speed loader and or moon clip is too bulky to carry. Now, I'm not going to argue with them if that's their perception and then that's their reality. Um, if it, a speed loader is something that you will carry habitually, then I certainly recommend you do it and practice regularly. Um, if it's not, then we need to find some alternatives. Loose rounds are probably the least effective because they are hard to manipulate, uh, but there are occasions where that's your best option. The only advantage or recommendation I would give when loading with loose rounds uh, well, first let me say that it is imperative that if you're carrying a self-defense weapon that you should carry spare ammunition. Um, there, At least in the police field, there are any number of occasions where the officer took out a primary weapon but carried no spare ammunition to his uh, very short-term um, uh, disappointment. Uh, so if you're carrying a firearm, always carry spare ammunition. If you're forced into a situation that needs to be loose ammunition, I would always recommend brass rounds over uh, nickel-plated. The nickel-plated were designed for a particular reason decades ago to to handle a problem that we generally don't face any longer, but you will find that the tactile difference when trying to manipulate with your fingertips, brass versus nickel, the nickel tend to be disproportionately uh, smoother and slipperier, 
and that slows down considerably your ability to reload. If I were forced into picking just one reloading mechanism, it would be the loading strips. Again, either the speed, stri uh, the speed strips or the quick strips. Um, my easiest, my, my, my primary trick when recommending uh, speed strips is to download them by four. Um, an empty uh, holding hole, four rounds in a, in a row, and then an empty holding hole. And the, the two advantages with that is that the strip that comes omnidirectional when you're manipulating it. You can grab it from either end, and you can manipulate it to put rounds in your firearm. Uh, you can also put them in uh, two at a time, first two, second two, and close the gun. One of the biggest mistakes uh, revolver shooters make when trying to reload quickly is believing that you need to fill every charge hole in order to load the gun fully. You do not need five rounds in a five-round gun or a six rounds in a six-round gun to load the gun. You need a round in the gun. One round makes that gun completely hot. Now, it's always preferable to put more than less, but if you actually do, and we certainly have here on any number of occasions, um, time motion studies, that you can get four rounds in nearly half the time it takes you to get in five rounds. And that's because when you're putting in your first two and then your next two, you have uh, a lot, uh, statistically, you have a lot more options. First and second hole, second and third hole, third and fourth hole, fourth and fifth, fifth and first. When you get to the point where you have put four rounds in and you're trying to put in that final round, you only have one charge hole available, one round, and you can spend up to 50% of your time orienting those two objects. So my recommendation is generally... All things being evil for concealability, speed strips, quick strips, four rounds, and preferably two of those, four rounds in the front pocket, four rounds in the rear pocket, because you don't know whether you'll be reloading uh, on your belly or on your back. Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of people don't think about that. That's, that's a very valid point. Michael, what are the three biggest considerations when choosing defensive ammunition for a snub-nosed revolver? How do I maximize the weapon's potential and stopping power given its small size and the short barrel? All right. Um, well, I would suggest that uh, the size and the barrel uh, aren't nearly your biggest concerns when trying to uh, optimize self-defense ammunition. Um, I'd actually suggest that there are actually either two or five, depending on how you count them, as opposed to three. Primarily, reliability, reliability, reliability. That ammunition that you choose has got to be reliable in your gun. Primers come in strength. There are, there are hard primers. There are soft primers. You have to be 100% certain that the ammunition that you're picking will go off uh, consistently when fired out of your gun by you. So once you have identified ammunition that is completely reliable in your gun, most of your troubles are behind you. The second part is defining optimum ammunition, and I use a mnemonic called ACLU. All ammunition, ammunition should be ACLU approved. And I don't mean the tongue-in-cheek. Again, it's a mnemonic. A, accurate. Is that ammunition accurate fired in your gun by you? It doesn't make a difference what the ammunition does fired by me and my firearms. What does the ammunition do when fired by you in your gun? If it's accurate, you can't do any effective work if you can't hit effectively. So A, make sure the ammunition is accurate. C, excuse me, L, uh, AC, I apologize, AC, uh, controllable. Is that round controllable when fired by you in your gun? There are certain uh, bullet weights and, and pressures that you can fire, but you might not want your, uh, your adult uh, teenage daughter or your grandmother to fire. You've got to make sure that it's controllable when fired by you. 
L, low muzzle flash. Um, most of these unpleasant incidents take place in low and poor light, um, and you want to make sure that the muzzle flash that you generate is not going to blind you for X amount of seconds. Uh, the best way to do that is in, in a controlled environment where you can modulate the lighting and then take a look at what kind of muzzle flash you produced. And then uh, you, user-friendly, can you afford to shoot that particular ammunition regularly so that you can master it? Um, so after I have found rounds that are consistently reliable in my firearm, I will go through my own protocol of ACLU to find ammunition. Um, you can only defend yourself with rounds that are effective when fired by you in your gun, and I find that that ACLU uh, protocol is a great way to optimize the ammunition. Uh, something I tell folks all the time, it doesn't make a difference what the gun writer tells you is the best ammunition. When fired by him and his gun, it doesn't tell, do you any good for me to tell you it's the best ammunition for me fired by me in my guns. You have to identify the best ammunition fired by you in your gun. You know, Michael, a lot of, uh, you can open up any gun magazine and you can see ads for gun sites that you can, that you can put on your weapon to make you more accurate, to be able to give you better sighting in low light and things like that. Most snub nose revolvers come with rudimentary sights that don't really work as well at, at aimed fire at distances, arguably. But what they might lack in long distance shooting, they make up for an extreme, extreme close quarter attacks. When it comes to tactical response, what are the three best tactics that you can share for close-range shooting with a snubby? Um, what I would suggest is that you uh, get a handle on the multiple sight picture options. Most shooters are not aware that there are several, uh, depending on how you count them, four, five, or six sight pictures. There's a cliche, and like many cliches, there's a neural truth in there. Uh, if you don't have time to miss, you must find time to aim. Now, um, different situations will require different levels of aiming precision. And what I always encourage folks to do is to take their favorite firearm out to the range and experiment with the multiple sighting pictures so they can determine how tight uh, a, a shooting group they wish conditional on the situation they're facing. And uh, the shorthand for the different uh, sight pictures you can practice at, at reasonable practical distances are uh, variations on, all, on, on a theme. We're all familiar with a traditional sight picture, front sight, rear sight, equal light on either side, flat across the top. Now, that's a very important sight picture for, for uh, exceptional accuracy, but exceptional accuracy isn't always something you need in every self-defense situation. So the first experiment would be a variation on a, a piece of information that Jeff Cooper used to advocate his flashlight picture where you deliberately uh, go to the range and deliberately practice shooting where you swing the front sight to the far left of the uh, rear sight and then uh, drop it down to the low left-hand corner inside the, the rear sight channel, drop it to the, the lower end of the center of the channel, drop it over to the lower right, and then bring it up to the far right. Make a practiced exercise of deliberately swinging that front sight blade, all five corners of your rear sight blade. And given the parallax, out to about uh, 10 to 15 feet, you can get a group dispersion of maybe no more than three to five inches. Now, three to five inches is not tack driving groups, but three to five inches at 10 to 15 feet is generally more than adequate for self-defense shooting. 
So are you saying you to shoot at, at shoot at each one of those corners is what you're talking about, or? Yes. What, what I would do is set up five separate targets, and then um, on the first target, fire off five rounds where the front sight is literally up abutting against the rear of the uh, rear sight. Then fire five rounds on the next target where the front sight blade is uh, nest, nested in the lower left-hand corner of the rear sight. Third target, five rounds where the top of the front sight is just peeking over the bottom of the bottom of the rear sight. And then for the uh, fourth and fifth, respectively, you have the uh, front sight blade just peeking up out of the lower right-hand corner and the last five where the front sight is just abutting up against the rear of right side of the rear uh, sight. And when you see, and you can put a point of aim in the center, when you see that that uh, semicircle group doesn't have a dispersion of more than, as I said, three to five inches, that will free you up to do a little faster shooting at practical self-defense distances because you're, you know that at reasonable self-defense distances, that group is not going to be nearly as wide as you think. Uh, does it make some sense? Yeah, absolutely. So what about in um, like real close quarters? I mean, most of the most attacks, you're either going to be ambushed, you're going to get, they're going to grapple you with you or whatever. And this is where, you know, obviously long distance aiming doesn't isn't necessary or even practical. So what about? And, and this is where the some of those revolver really has um, a lot of a lot of advantage as well. So in in extreme close quarters shooting, are there any tactics that you have for for quick response? Uh, three, in fact, uh, and this is certainly can be done in a controlled environment, generally with, with dummy guns or cast aluminum ones. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the advantages is that when you're pressing the firearm, the revolver up against a, an attacker in mid-fight, you don't have to worry about the slide coming out of battery and the weapon malfunctioning. So you can make contact shots. The question is where. Now, there are a lot of theories about where is best to do a contact shot, but uh, as an emergency uh, application, I would say anything that's not you is a good start. Um, uh, the, the only item of note, and it's, it's pretty esoteric, was uh, be careful when rubbing the muzzle up against the chest uh, because on occasion the muzzle will make contact with the rib as opposed to the intercostal spaces between the ribs, and that has been known in at least one case in an officer-involved uh, attack that he uh, ended up breaking the rib of an attacker as opposed to getting the bullet between the ribs, but for for shorthand, anything that's not you is a good start. So contact shooting. Uh, Second, uh, the the ergonomics of the the, the small revolver, once you or if you run out of ammunition, is to treat it as a cross between a brass knuckles and a push dagger. Uh, You have an object in your hand that's going to be unyielding. Uh, There are actual classes. Uh, Andy Stanford is probably most famous for using the unloaded or the malfunctioned firearm as an impact weapon, it's an amazing good program, but there are all kinds of tricks you can use with the unloaded of the malfunction gun if you require it, uh, which is which is something that often uh, self-defense practitioners overlook. Um, uh, I'll, I'll leave it that for the moment. Well, the, what about um, especially like in concealability? One of the things that I think a lot of concealed carry permit owners don't consider is that they're not going to be able to get to their gun, or they're going to be ambushed, and they're not. You know, they're not even going to be able to draw their weapon, especially when you're talking about the snub nose revolver that you might be carrying in your pocket. Um, what's the, um, 
what are some what's a tip that you may have for somebody that's ambushed and maybe has their snub nose in their pocket? All right. Well, I w- I'll do it in reverse order. Uh, um, one of the most important lessons in self-defense is not the equipment that we carry uh, that we add to us. It's the equipment that we were issued, i.e., your uh, your ability to observe what's around you and pay attention to it. Right. Um, a, a trick that I apply with my friends, my students, even my children is that whenever we are out and about, I ask them to find the thing that's out of the ordinary. And I tell them there's always something out of the ordinary. Uh, and invariably they'll find something, often things that I will miss, and it conditioning them to look and observe. Most people see, but they don't observe. Uh, and my children are also smart enough to know that if they look around, uh, getting in the car, getting out of the car, getting into school, getting out of school, and they don't find something out of the ordinary, then the thing that is out of the ordinary is that nothing is out of the ordinary. So if you're aware of your environment, if it looks like you're paying attention to what's going around you, you are less likely to need any of the self-defense gear because theoretically you'll see it first and you'll avoid it sooner. Now let's assume that doesn't come to pass. Now I myself, unlike, uh, um, uh, I, let's say this, unlike, unlike some of my friends, who are big advocates of pocket carry, I am not a big fan of pocket carry for mechanical reasons. But let's assume that that is your most practical option. Then my highest recommendation is, if that is what you're going to be doing, you need to dress around the gun. Most of the pockets that that are available men's pants today, unlike our grandfather's age, are much smaller and they're cut much tighter. So it is worth it to go find pants that might be two or three size larger and have them uh, reduced in the waistband, but pants that are two and three sizes larger tend to have larger pockets. A very simple trick when trying to buy pants that you will be carrying a, a handgun in is to uh, put the unloaded gun in your hand, put your fist on the table, and measure the distance from the bottom of your fist to the top of the top strap. And then whatever that is, six, seven inches, take yourself a small ruler, cut it to that length, and when you're out buying pants, make sure that the bottom of your pocket and the top of your pocket will take that size opening. Um, this way, when you reach into the pocket and you pull it out, you're not going to get your hand uh, caught when it's wrapped around a firearm. Um, that's probably the, the simplest low-tech trick I can give you. A second item is to go down to the seamstress. Most of the pockets are not cut deep enough to, con- uh, to effectively conceal a handgun. So for about $15 or $30, depending on your part of the country, you can bring a dummy gun and a uh, whatever your uh, pocket holster of choice is, bring it down to the seamstress and ask her or uh, him, if it's a tailor, to, to lower the pocket by four or five inches. Um, this will keep the weapon well concealed uh, and yet still give you plenty of access. So a, a deeper pocket and a wider pocket opening are probably my, my two primary recommendations for those who uh, who do, in fact, carry uh, in a pocket. Michael, one of the things that a lot of people that carry concealed don't consider is that they might not be able to get their gun out of the holster. I mean, you could be ambushed. You could be struck from behind. You could be you know, have somebody grappling with you. We're not able to get to your weapon. For people that are carrying front pocket carry with, like, a snub-nosed revolver, this is one of the areas where I think it, it really helps to, you know, it really shines. It has an advantage. And one of the things that I had seen you talk about in one of your articles was that you don't necessarily have to be able to draw your weapon to shoot your weapon. In fact, you recommend that worst-case scenario where you're grappling, you're really right up close with somebody, 
that you can just reach in and shoot through your pocket. Can you talk a little bit more about that? When you are shooting through a pocket, uh, preferably a jacket pocket, uh, two items of note with it's very difficult to get some sort of body index on the target. So you have to be particularly close. A very low-tech trick for practicing shooting when you're not drawing the weapon is to get a pair of disposable pants, uh, cut them off high on the thigh, and have the seamstress or the tailor uh, stitch up the bottom cuff. Uh, you can pick up uh, pants for like a dollar at the Salvation Army. Two or three pairs of pants gives you uh, um, four or six uh, set of these sewn-up sleeves, if you will. You can then go to the range, put your uh, load your ammunition in your gun, put your gun in, uh, in uh, the sleeve, and then you can shoot on the range and feel the heat, the blast, the concussion that one generally gets when you are inside an uh, enclosed pocket, which, by the way, is wildly overrated. Uh, uh, you're actually going to be—it's going to be rather depressing how little muzzle blast and heat there is. But you're going to appreciate how close you must be to get effective shots off when you have no index on the target at all. Uh, the thing you also want to note when you're shooting inside an enclosed uh, uh, pocket is that as the bullet clears the cylinder into the forcing cone, a good portion of the gas is going to be shooting outside of the, um, the forcing cone uh, on either side of the cylinder. That gas is moving at an amazing speed at a high pressure and will generally blow uh, a good portion of the cover garment apart. So you want to be aware that when you're shooting – whether it's in a concealed pocket or if it's a muzzle contact issue, that there's going to be a lot of gas going out in directions that you may not anticipate, i.e. directly in front of you. You have to be careful that you are not so close that the gas is going to be directed uh, towards your eyes or your face. Got it. Or if it's in your pocket, other parts of your anatomy, you may not want gases exploding out too. Um, something, another, another subtle reason that you might want to reconsider pocket carry. Right. Great. Okay, Michael, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. Uh, and I'm sure you've convinced others to give the snub nose Revolver a second look and add it to their personal and, and home defense arsenal. So thanks for taking some time with us today. Again, everyone, you'll definitely want to take advantage of any of the training that you can get from Michael. Not only will you learn valuable life-saving tactics, but frankly, you'll probably pretty much just laugh your ass off during the, uh, during the training. They always have a good time. So you can see all the training that he has to offer by visiting his website, at www.snubtraining.com, so go check it out. And until our next Modern Combat and Survival broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying train hard, stay safe, prepare now. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.